This podcast was recorded on the stolen lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders past and present. We recognise First Nation people's deep connection to land, water, sky, country, culture and language. Sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, where we talk about political systems and structures through a feminist perspective. My name's Leah, and today we're talking about the protests in Iran and the, the feminist uprisings that have been happening over the last few years. I'm joined today by Hoda and Nazanin. Welcome. Um, do you guys want to just tell us a little bit about yourselves? Ah, so yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's such a okay. privilege to be able to use the spaces like your podcast uh, to talk about uh, our mothers and our sisters uh, back in Iran and our own struggles. My name is Nazanin. I have lived uh, in uh, Norm, Melbourne for about 10 years now. I came here to go to university and before that I lived in Iran for the first 20 something years of my life uh, and I went to school in Iran. Right now uh, I've known Hoda for a while uh, but since the uh, after the death of Mahsa Junaimini in September of 2022, uh, many protests started in Iran, many protests started in the uh, diaspora outside of Iran-Iranian communities in support of uh, women's rights, minority rights in Iran, and ultimately uh, asking for a regime change in Iran uh, against the Islamic Republic uh, establishment regime. Um so Hoda and I have been uh, active in this scene in our own way, finding our voice. Uh, and she's an amazing spirit uh, to have in the group. We also have started a group. It's called Feminista.Melbourne. Uh, we're on Instagram, most active over there and also on other platforms. And uh, we mostly do artworks trying to be the voice of our people and communicate what's happening to us, what's happening in Iran, what we're going through, through this uh, platform of art that we have access to. Uh, and yeah, Hoda, would you like to talk about yourself? Yeah, I'm Hoda. It's such an honor to be on your podcast because as I told you, I'm really obsessed with your podcast at the moment and I'm listening to it Shopping all the time. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> really, I listen to it all the time, like while I'm working, while I'm driving. Oh. I'm like, well, how can I be your podcast sooner <laughs> oh, that's so but nice. never never to be late yeah so yeah i'm i met nazanin a long time ago and uh but recently we got much closer uh about what the recent protests that happened in iran and uh, i get to i get to work with her with uh some art installation works uh through feminista.melbourne and it's there's some art installation art installation that we're collaborating with tehran art circle group Mm. A group of artists in Iran that they don't, they cannot express themselves because they, they're going to risk their own life. That's why we're helping them to um, exhibit their, their art here. Yeah. And um, yeah, I came here four years ago and I grew up in Iran and I knew myself as like a really open-minded woman. But when I came here, just like I do anything that women can do here in a free country, but under good ground, indoors. Indoors, mm. I could show my hair, you know, uh, wear the choice of my clothing. Mm. But outdoor, you need to hide yourself. You need to pretend someone that you are not, you know. Mm. Uh, so I grew up in that kind of society that men ruling the country. And 
they have lots of privilege uh, comparing to women. Hoda, do you feel that uh, kind of like the oppression that we felt in Iran and the patriarchal yeah. system that we were in it uh, have affected you subconsciously? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Even the way that I'm closing here, like sometimes, sometimes I'm feeling like that my partner need to get me a permission for the, for my what I'm really. Sometimes I have this concern, even like in my stuff. It's not conscious, but it's like, oh, okay. If I if I wear this, is it too like exposing? Is it like should I wear that? And what if my partner got upset from it? And my partner even he 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 doesn't mind at all. Mm. But this is something that, you know, this is something inside me that I grew up with. Because in Iran, when you go outside, every man, like even like a stranger, they can come to you and say, like, cover your hair. Don't show your, mm. you know, your hands. You know, they can, they can say anything. I was yeah. saying to Naz, one of the first, like, proper feminist books that I ever read was reading Lolita in Tehran. And I remember there was a story in there where... um A woman was assaulted because she was eating an apple seductively in public. What does that even mean? (laughs) What? So, like, you can literally do nothing just in case a man interprets that as a sexual act or a man is aroused. That becomes the woman's fault. It's it's an assault to men as well. That they cannot control themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Leah, I had a question about that book. Uh, I haven't read it, but you told me about it. And then afterwards, a friend of mine, who again, I I got much closer to her in this revolution, Mm. as we call it. Uh, And yeah, she's leaving Australia and she gave me the book, uh, (laughs) Reading Lolita and Tehran. Yeah, she had it. She gave it to me. I haven't read it yet. Uh, Would you tell us a little bit about it? God, I can't even... I can. I just I just remember snippets of it, but basically it was um a group of Iranian women who would go undercover mm-hmm. and would read like Western literature, mm-hmm. like in like a secret book club, and it was mm-hmm. just about their stories with the secret police, with their family members, and like a lot of shame and but res- the resilience and the strength mm-hmm. that you get from coming together as a community. Yeah, it it was probably twenty years ago that I read that book. Uh, but yeah but it's it's one of you know those books that you read that yeah. just stay with you i yeah. actually should read it again what you're book. saying that a story really resonates with me so much of i think well to, to give you a little bit of context islamic republic uh, the regime in iran after the revolution the vocabulary that i'm using now that i've learned recently in the yeah. last couple of years is a gender apartheid uh, because it's essentially a system based on oppressing one gender over another one to maintain power. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the laws that are written, the behavior that they're encouraging, uh, what, you know, what they are pursuing as a crime and what other acts of violence they let go because it's act of violence against women and they don't care about it. Uh, it's all fits within this system of power that, yes, women are oppressed. So that if one group at the top, it's not even all men, but a very specific group of men, uh, they can hold all the power. Mm. Uh, breaking. And so like when you live in a system like this, uh, so much of information, so much of the truth, so much of what's out there is censored. Uh, it's not told to us. Uh, Hodo and I were talking earlier about the historical context of our country. And I was having this 
like uncomfortable feeling that yeah, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And then I thought about it. I was like, I studied all of these historical points and facts in school. Why am I not confident about it? And I realized, mm-hmm. well, because I'm never sure that if what I've been taught is the whole truth yes. or not. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, I mean, so Australia I'm... would know nothing about that. <laughs> Sorry, oh, I yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it's uh, it's a similar situation in other countries as well. Uh, that yeah, parts of the history are told from the a certain point of view. Parts of it have been erased later. The history books keep changing year by year. Uh, that has been our experience, and I'm never like you know sure about what's the truth. But uh, what you mentioned with the women in that book, uh, reading Lolita in Tehran, we're mm. doing reading literature, talking to each other, having this like secret underground club. Uh, my mother has done similar things to that, but through movies. Uh, she, I, Because just the scene that you de- described reminded me of a movie. It's called Two Women. Uh, and uh, it follows the story of two women who are friends and uh, they are going to university uh, and uh, Iran's revolution happens. One of them is from a more traditional family. One of them is from a more modern family. And after the 1979 revolution, uh, I think a year after that, less than a year after it, uh, Khomeini calls for a white revolution, a reform of education system. And at that time, uh, they closed down universities. Now, there's way more stories of what happens when they do that, but they essentially wanted to reform the education system. So they closed down universities. Uh, this other woman who was from a traditional family, uh, she was from another city studying in Tehran. So now she has to go back home. Uh, now she's going back home to a country that's becoming more and more uh, conservative. Uh, and the oppression on women is just like layering up. And she was already going back to a, to a family that was more conservative. And then there's eight years of war. All of that is happening she's kind of like forced into marrying somebody because her family are like, yeah, you know, what What are you going to do? You're just here. You have to study. And slowly, slowly, she's losing the freedom that she had. Uh, the husband that she gets married to at the beginning uh, in the ceremony that they have when that husband is coming to ask, that guy is coming to ask for her hand. She says, yeah, you know, I'm not studying right now because universities are, cl- are closed, but uh, I want to go back to university. She was the top student in her class. She wanted to. And then the husband says, yes, yes, I'm going to let you do it. But of course, a couple of years later, when the universities are open, after she has one kid, the husband is not letting her go. The freedom is being taken away from her st- step by step. There's one moment in the climax of the movie that uh, the husband finds all of these boxes of books that she was hiding from the husband. She was reading them uh, by herself alone. And then the husband is like really angry at her. It's like, what are you doing? And then she just like erupts. I guess she also finds a couple of the books and then she just like brings all of these books. So she's like, here, I read this. I read this. I read this. You can't take this away from me. This is me. I want to learn. I want to be part of society. I want to live. And no matter how much, how many times you're going to beat me, how much you're going to uh, put pressure on me, you can never ever take this freedom away from me. And my mother showed this movie to me when I was a teenager and she told me that this is a movie that helped her uh, realize the value of learning and uh, knowing and uh, having ownership over your life and um, 
uh, having agency. And she used this movie to teach it, to show a couple of her cousins who were going through really difficult times at that time. A couple of her cousins who were also being like, oh, you know, you're 16, you're 15, maybe you should get married. Like, you know, your family can't really afford. And uh, like, and she encouraged them to continue with education and learning. And it's really interesting because my mother is uh, was the first woman from her uh, extended family to, that went to university. And then those couple of cousins younger than her that she helped, they also followed through going to university. But the rest of them, they got married pretty young. Uh, and uh, some of them have good husbands, but, you know, it was really left up to chance. Uh, they didn't have much agency at the time. Um, stories like this, arts, literature, community, learning from our mothers uh, has been very important, I think. And I feel many of us have stories like that, that uh, we were able to understand what is the truth, what is out there, the system that we're being forced into is not the whole reality. Mm. Uh, by having that connection, somebody reminding us, somebody showing us the other side. That's so beautiful. Sorry, I just need a minute. <laughs> it was emotional, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> oh. It's that collective sharing and that unification and the coming together that no matter what patriarchy or oppressive systems are in place, mm-hmm. we'll find a way to nourish that and to, to grow that. And it's so important. And it really strikes me. There's so many similarities between contexts. Like, obviously, I mean, there's there's a clear difference between, like, what's happening in South America, what's happening in Iran and women going missing for dancing and things like that. Like, that's, it's the, it's the same mm. system. It's the yeah. same system being enforced in different ways and with different mm. ways of silencing yeah. dissent, really. At the core of it, it's all about... Uh, looking at women as commodities and objects right. uh, that mm-hmm. they are yeah, they're both responsible for morality of men but also they they are valued less mm-hmm. and the, that's like at the core of so much of the struggles we are having in Iran and uh, that's both in a level of uh, what the country what establishment uh, what the government wants mm-hmm. to achieve uh, what the laws want to achieve the laws yeah. that they put on the book and the culture of the people, which is not a monolith culture. No. Uh, of course, it's like very different from place to place, from family to family, from time to time. We are going through a revolution. We're calling it Woman Life Freedom Revolution. That's yeah. because it was the chant that the family of Gina Amini, uh, also known as Massa Amini, chanted at her uh, burial day. Mm. It's a Kurdish chant. Uh, it comes from the resistance of uh, Kurdish women in Turkey. And looking back at that gender equality, it was one of the main pillars, one of the basic starting points they wanted to achieve in their community, in their country. Uh, and then after that, they can achieve a prosperous life and a free society. That chant, we are using it in the rest of Iran, in diaspora now, because it gave us so much power, so much unity. It gave us the vocabulary to ask for what we were fighting for for many years, for generations even. And uh, for some of it, we didn't have a, like a unifying vocabulary. Now we're fighting, we're using it. I see that uh, some men or even some women still have the talking points of, oh, you know, like, you know, the compulsory hijab is fixed. The girls are not wearing it anymore. 
or uh, no like you know it's not a big deal the, the other thing is a big deal having a mm. form of government is the what we need to work on having a, finding a leader from the diaspora or from inside of iran is what we need to work on and um that's still a fight that i see so many of us are actively fighting in different ways mm-hmm. like you know at dinner tables with our own families and friends uh, online on the street and throughout our artworks and uh, what we talk about that we want to tell people hey this is what i experienced as a woman living in iran this is what i experienced as a woman being connected to that system yeah uh, and we can't t- topple this regime that we're trying to deal with it and still not valuing women's right at the space that it should be valued yeah mm-hmm. uh, but i need to add to your words nazarin that well you're saying that like yes there are a bit of freedom now in iran some women like in the street of big cities like tehran and in like in in good area not in all areas busy streets you can see that women their scarves around their neck or it's in their uh bag or something and there's some freedom but and i think it's because that uh the the government have run they they want to show the words that oh you know uh we fixed this and there isn't anything that people actually protest for it or people fight for it and i think all of these are temporary mm. and when nobody's talking about it, they're gonna they're gonna put the pressure on the people more than before like I guess it was one month or two months ago, a kid named Sara got attacked on the way to school. And why? Because she wasn't wearing the scarf that like, uh, that's part of the school official form. And she was showing her hair and she got attacked and her, her video got viral in, uh, in social media and everywhere. And imagine if it happened somewhere else around the world. Imagine if it happened in Melbourne, what would happen? But what happening in Iran, the attacker got encouraged for doing this. This is like, what? what is the, like, effing mind is that? <laughs> like, and t- she was a primary school student. So how yeah. old? Like nine eight, years old? Eight, eight nine. nine. And uh, who attacked her was the mother of one of her classmates. So the mother of a student going to the same school just took it upon herself to punish this kid. And... Uh, Scenes like this are still happening. It's uh, not fixed, no. No. Uh, and the no. women that yeah, in the streets yeah. are not wearing hijab or taking it off wherever mm. they can way more than before. Mm. Uh, they're taking a serious risk because honestly, you never know when will be the moment that you're going to face mm-hmm. with the radical person uh, mm. who has these radical beliefs and uh, they allow themselves, they see justified, they see like it's their duty um, for their religion and for their system and for the establishment to carry out the law that they believe is the law and yeah, violently attack you. I have thought about it. If I go to Iran like right now, would I be wearing hijab? Would I not be wearing hijab? I'm honestly not sure. I'm still scared of, uh, I still think about it and I'm like, ah, oh, that fear that is so deep rooted in me mm. uh, from growing up in a system that taught me to mm-hmm. be afraid of other people and taught me that, yeah, I need to like, you know, be small. I need to be quiet. I need to not take yeah. space. Don't, gr- don't yeah. grab attention, cover up, like, you know, because I want to stay safe. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what I would do, honestly. And 
I do watch a lot of videos, uh, daily blogs. Uh, there's a couple of channels on YouTube that they take videos of just walking in the streets of Tehran. And my partner, I know he's interested in, he, he's Australian. He's interested in seeing what's happening actually mm -hmm. on the street right now. So we see, oh, what was happening before that of Massachusetts? What's happening right now? We can see the signs of, oh, mm. th this thing is broken in the street. Probably mm -hmm. there was a protest day a couple of days ago. Oh, there is some graffiti on the wall that is like partially covered right now. You mm -hmm. can make up a little bit of what it says. Yeah, when you get to some more affluent parts of the town or like a, a shopping mall, no headscarves, no long clothing. These people clearly walked out of their car wearing just pants and a shirt and they're outside. Then the camera goes mm. to like a more main street that's busy that like police can come mm. and go. Now women are covering up. Uh, we see that change has happened a lot uh, in a much bigger scale of what it was before the Women Life Freedom mm -hmm. Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it is not because we have achieved or we have won that freedom. It's because mm. people are taking that freedom. People yeah. are doing it because uh, that's what they want. Uh, yeah. That's one of their basic choices, what to wear. Yeah. Um, and to be safe while you have a choice of clothing. So yeah, people are demanding it. It's <laughs> so nice to be able to see those wins and be yeah. able to know that the, the risks that people have been taking, that mm -hmm. the lives that people have given to the movement are mm -hmm. for something. It's powerful. We hope that it will achieve a sustainable change. Yeah. Uh, now everything is in a transition phase. Yes. Uh, and, and the transition needs to be slow because the culture needs to come with you. Yeah, so Khomeini was mm -hmm. exiled at some stage, wasn't he? Yeah. And then when he was in exile in France, he drafted the constitution. I could give a bit of a history. Yeah, please. Okay. So just a bit of historical context. When we talk about Islamic Republic Revolution, uh, we're referring to the 1979 uh, revolution in Iran that uh, transitioned the government uh, from a monarchy uh, with the parliament to what we have right now, which is Islamic Republic. Uh, so Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, he was the last king of Iran. And during his time, it was obviously like still a monarchy, uh, political freedom wasn't that available, but he was promoting a lot of social reform and social freedom. Uh, so freedom of clothing, uh, how to like, you know, dancing, singing, performing of women that was all encouraged by the establishment. The Iran's royal family were especially Farah, the last queen of Iran. They were advocates of art and culture, and uh, they wanted to create this uh, modern Middle Eastern Iranian Persian country. Why were women not wearing hijab before Islamic Republic Revolution? It was because Reza Shah the father of the last king. Yeah. He, you know, took over the country. He had this idea of a modernist country, new identity. Also, he wanted to, like, you know, create a branding. You can't be similar to your neighboring country, which were mostly Arab Muslim countries. You yeah. need to be different because you always need, like, you know, a justification why your border is separate from them. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, it's Hitler and Nazis and uh, the whole Aryan blood and all of that. And, you know, it's before Hitler was actually taking power, but the whole ideology that is being created about, like, you know, a better race and this power and Aryans in Germany, also Aryans in Iran. 
there was some of the archaeologists that were like, you know, going around into these regions trying to map out the whole movement of this group of people called Aryans. Okay. And a group of them went to Europe, a group of them came to Iran, a group of them went to India. That was the history book. That was what I was taught. Later on, the, all of those theories are being debunked because the scientists at the time who put it together, they had so much uh, like a racist and a political agenda. They're Sounds more, like it. Really, yeah, you can't really trust it much. No. So much of it. Anyhow, still, okay, kings of Iran, Persian Empire... The word Aryan, the word Arya, it was used in Iran, but were these people the same race as the ones who went in Europe? Maybe, maybe not. How much do we know? We're not yeah. really sure. Okay. So many things have happened, like genealogical studies. Some of them have covered something. Somehow, it really isn't for me to comment on it anymore. But this whole notion of, oh, Aryan blood, we are better. We are like, you know, so superior. This narrative being created in Germany was also yeah. being repeated in Iran. Okay. Ew. Anyhow, which, yeah, if you talk to so many Iranians, they might have still repeated. It took so much, honestly, like, you know, uh, breaking out of that narratives for myself to understand it. Daniel told me, hey, you know, there's this people of color club. Maybe you would like to, like, you know, be part of it in uni. And I had such a big problem. with. I was like, what are you talking about? I have nothing more in common with them than I have with you. I'm white. What are you talking about? Look at my skin. Like the the vocabulary that I was raised on in Iran and mm. uh, this notion of you, no, 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 like race and color of skin have to be like very different. Like I'm considered white. Like this whole notion that you guys in a Western country have gone through over the definition mm. of white. Why do I get to it? Oh, yeah. White women before Islamic Republic weren't wearing hijab. So at the same time of all of that is happening, creating new identity, trying to create a modern country, he's looking for visual representations of it. Parts of it was creating this narrative of Persian empire and I'm connected to it and Aryans and better race and all that. Yeah. Another part of it was the visual representation of why this country is different. He goes to Turkey, Ataturk, again, another military leader who took over a country, who took over a empire and a dynasty, was ruling yep. Turkey. And Ataturk was really against religion. He killed many religious leaders. Uh, he himself was not really a religious person. So he just killed religious leaders. Turkey was already a bit more multicultural country in compare to Iran because of its connection to Europe. They were already having people who weren't Muslims. They already had a big Christian population. So it was easier for him to convert being like, no, 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 the image is modern, like Europe. This hijab has nothing in it. Promote women modern clothing. Reza Shah took that as, okay, I'm going to take headscarves off women's hair. So he enforced taking headscarves off. The same, you know, type of people that I told you who were running after women after Islamic Republic Revolution, pushing the headscarf on women. There are stories of his soldiers running after women in the street who were wearing the headscarf and taking it off their hair. Mm. These bodies of women... Yeah. have been used for creating the branding for Iran in different times during his history. Before that, Qajar, they were forcing the official clothing was covering your whole body, even your whole face. That was, again, forced by the government on women. Uh, and I'm sure if we had access to documents, proper documents to understood it, we could see this clothing being forced on women even before and in multiple generations maybe that's why it was like you know easy for islamic republic to push their ideology on women's body people were already used to it that was their branding yeah 
So Mohammad Reza Shah partnering with different artists, uh, organizations, other companies, factories to bring this business, to bring business and wealth to Iran. And they wanted to have a sustainable growth uh, moving forward. What happened is, of course, there were people who didn't want monarchy. There were people who didn't want a secular country uh, as he was promoting. There were there were lots of opposition to that regime at that time. Uh, there were lots of political prisoners. There were lots of political prisoners who were getting tortured. Like the number of those tortures and the number of those arrests, it's not even comparable to what Islamic Republic achieved afterwards. Mm-hmm. So there was that uh, environment of uh, that many freedom thinkers at the time uh, wanted democracy. That's what mm-hmm. they were fighting. And there were several groups in Iran uh, fighting uh, for changing the system, changing the regime, bringing a revolution. Some of them had communist ideologies. Some of them had more secular ideologies. Some of them uh, were more Islamic, different groups. So there was uh, many voices at the time. Now, lots of things happened during that time. One of the uh, main factors that made the revolution possible was when uh, Iran's army uh, declared neutrality. And that meant that the Shah couldn't use it for uh, oppressing uh, the protesters anymore. And people felt that oh, if we actually achieve this, if we get rid of this one guy, we're going to be safe because we're going to have army to protect the people and the country. Mm. Uh, moments like that happen. Uh, Khomeini, he was exiled, I think, about 15 years before the revolution. Yeah. Yep. Around that time. The story of his exile, as far as I have learned, uh, goes like this. So he was one of the voices of opposition against the Shah, which it's really interesting. In our history books in school, uh, the version written and taught to us by Islamic Republic, they wrote that these were the two oppositions only and nothing else. Okay. Which which, tells you something. One, allowing women to vote. So for choosing members of our parliament, at some point, uh, the Shah's government decided to also allow women to vote uh, for the members of parliament. Khomeini was opposed to that. And also allowing uh, non-Muslim politicians or like members of the public to get elected for parliament. And Mm. uh, when they're elected, when they're doing the swearing ceremony, they swear on their own uh, holy book instead of on Quran. Yeah. Uh, so these two things are the only two things that is mentioned in our version of history books, what he was opposed to. I don't know what else he was opposed to that they don't <laughs> tell us anymore, to be honest. Well, we can probably kind of tell from his constitution. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> Anyhow. So he was, uh, I don't know the exact details about it, but he was in prison multiple times by the Shah's regime. He, of course, had some followers. Before his exile was when they came uh, for, I think he was sentenced to like, you know, a more long-term imprisonment or even execution. I'm not sure about those details because, again, so much of the history of that time has been rewritten, censored. And I'm only remembering it from like a couple books that I read and mm. I don't even remember which one it was, but it was something around it. So yeah. the Shah wanted to prosecute him more. What yeah. happened is there was a rule at the time that uh, it means a source of following, source of copying. That's like the phrase. Uh, what that is, is when you study, when you start studying uh, theology, Islamic theology, mm. there are multiple levels. Imagine like, like, you know, if you have a bachelorate, a master or a doctorate. 
Mm-hmm. Think of it like that because you go to technically to a school, you're part of that system. Uh, and the doctorate level, which is like the highest one, is when you have studied this religion to the point of proficiency that now you can make your own interpretations and help the people of your time uh, to the modern problems that they're having. Because this book is written 1,400 years ago. It doesn't have exact answers for the modern problems. Yeah. So the people of your town... They're supposed to, after they come of age, after, like, you know, uh, they're mature enough, uh, which, you know, for girls is at the age of nine, for boys is at the age of 15 anyway. Uh, they're supposed to choose a marriage athlete, a religious leader at that level uh, that they're like, oh, I'm going to follow their teachings. That was a system already. There was a rule on the uh, in Iran at the time that marriage athlete, uh, like someone with that status uh, shouldn't be prosecuted with like the specific sentence that he was going to get. And Khomeini wasn't at that level. When there was the news of the police officers coming for his arrest, there was another marriage attack at the time. And the way that you get this status is for another marriage attack to declare you someone with that status. So another one declared him a marriage attack overnight. Uh, so suddenly he was protected, like the immunity that ambassadors have in each country. Yeah, yeah. So then the Shah couldn't prosecute him. Uh, that's why he got exiled. And this is really interesting because now that he's exiled, of course, he has much more freedom to uh, talk about what he wants and put his name on it. So many of the other groups who were active in Iran, who were part of bringing together this revolution, changing minds, uh, negotiating, taking power back from the Shah, they were doing it anonymously. Mm. So many of those people Mm. couldn't put their names uh, on the Mm. statements that they were publishing because they were inside an era. What is left is Khomeini, who's now in France. He is like the only religious leader who's openly uh, public about it. And uh, his words resonated with some people. Uh, for whatever reason that they had, and he started gaining a following. Yeah. In the lead up to the revolution, there was so much poverty and the financial collapse, the spike in the oil prices and the inflation and then the corruption and then the recession and the unemployment and all of that kind of stuff, people being unhappy with the Shah really joining the protests and all that kind of stuff that eventually led to the revolution. Which even about that, it's really interesting which period of time you're looking at for the financial analysis and what you're valuing or what. Because, yes, there are some analysis that are saying, hey, just before it, there was financial problems. Yeah. Then if you look at a a little bit larger window of uh, financial uh, development in Iran, so many people are saying, no, see, this was like going up, the equality, yeah. the, the class uh, structure was becoming closer together, there was progress, yes, there is like this period of uh, disturbance as well, but the trend overall, over a longer period of time, was positive. So that's also interesting. Financial problems uh, happened before it. They have happened so many much worse than it's, that Islamic Republic. I also wonder, because I know that the Britain and the UK were involved in Iran and sort of infiltrating oh, yes. and puppet governments and all of this kind yeah. of stuff in the lead up to all of this. And you do also wonder how much the US and the UK had to do with it. Yeah, well, it was only a couple of years ago that uh, lots of official documents uh, of America, of CIA got released mm. that uh, I think like they have a rule that after a certain uh, number of years passed, uh, those documents become public. 
and it was showing mm. that how much uh, USA was active in toppling Mossadegh's regime. So Mossadegh was one of the prime ministers uh, mm. in the time of Reza Shah. This is before Mohammed yep, Reza Shah, yep, yep, yep. his father. Uh, that was the closest Iranian people had to democracy because like it came through uh, protests and reform and election uh, and yet yeah, they wanted to move away from the king at the time. To Is this the coup d'etat in 53? Yeah, yeah, that's that yeah. one. Yeah, And mm-hmm. like how much more uh, CIA was active in it than yeah. what we knew before. We don't know, maybe in a couple of years, I mean, we are already suspecting it. Yeah. majority of people do uh that yeah definitely uh powers uh, of uh, us and britain and even france had a lot of influence in the outcome of iran's revolution one reason of that that many people refer to is uh the oil um um syndica that iran and saudi arabia were part of opec mm. and they were fixed they were setting the price of oil mm. And how much, uh, and U.S. wasn't part of it at the time. Yeah. Uh, and how much that was affecting U.S. economy. If you follow through the whole history of foreign powers controlling oil in Iran, so many of those moments match uh, the political changes that happened in Iran. Before uh, Reza Shah, uh, even the change from Qajar to Pahlavi uh, was fully supported by the British government uh, mm-hmm. because the Qajar kings... Uh, they did weren't like you know following through uh, with the promises of giving a British petroleum uh, the ownership over oil that they wanted. People weren't happy with the Qajar king, so uh, British government thought to themselves at some point that oh yeah, this is not such a stable uh, relationship for us. People aren't happy with them, so we better help people to get rid of them mm. and then bring one of our own friends uh, over it. That yeah. Um, Reza Shah, the first one, the first Pahlavi king, he wasn't from any royal family or anything. He was a military officer. Yeah. And then got so much support through a, a moment that there was resistance against Qajar uh, dynasty. Mm. Uh, I think he got the power. The story of that kept happening again. And uh, when yeah, Mossadegh wanted to nationalize oil, he succeeded in doing it. But then again, after that, they... Um, convinced Iran to sign contracts uh, with American oil companies. Mm. There's a sentence that uh, Reza Shah has, uh, no, Mohammed Reza Shah, the last one. It says, the oil was our was our blessing and our curse because everybody wanted a piece of this land. Yeah. Where did we get to? How much more? <laughs> this is what I want to say, that what happened that Khomeini, yeah, he wrote the constitution when he was still in France. Mm. That was his ideology. Mm-hmm. The revolution is happening, people are protesting, people are unhappy, so many different things are happening at the same time. Uh, and uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, uh, he gives this speech on the TV that, what, Hoda, if you know more, please uh, chime in. But I remember that he said, I heard the voice of your revolution, I hear mm-hmm. you're um, unhappy, I'm going to make reforms. But it was too late. Revolution already happening. And it was yeah, like it was already happening. Really people are late, thinking yeah. shortly after that was when he suddenly, unannounced, uh, left Iran. Yeah. And uh, in the official news, they said, no, they're only going for a trip. Uh, <laughs> but they knew that they're leaving. I'm just going to get some smokes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just getting some milk. I'll be right back. Yeah, no <laughs> Like, I suppose what I've read 
is again maybe mm-hmm. that watered down history but it, it mm-hmm. reads like the country was in crisis and then I mean obviously it's a watered down propaganda version yeah. the country was in crisis and the revolution happened and the supreme leader stepped in and and saved everyone yeah that's a nice narrative isn't it doesn't that like go well in the storybooks yeah but, yeah I mean, I think the thing that is missing is, is um, who was yeah. who was doing that, like that hard work on the ground to organize and to agitate. Yeah. Anyone who is an organizer and agitator knows that it takes so much work to get mm. the people together, agreeing on a single, like, and actually move people out. So I'm going to go out on a just a limb. Yeah. And be like, hey, so was it the women of Iran who were doing that? <laughs> um, I believe. Okay, as far as I have learned. Yes, women were really active yeah. uh, in supporting the protests, in being in those meetings uh, that were critical for different factions. So much of the activism was happening in universities. Uh, all of these other political groups that I told you about, that they were like underground political groups, uh, they had factions in different universities. Mm. Because, of course, the students, university students are a power that any movement uses them they have the time they have the energy they have they are like you know they want to establish the system they're in that age uh they get taken advantage of uh by so many of these ideologies um but but women were in universities uh, but the percentage of female students was still less uh, than Mm -hmm. what it is right now and it was way less than men Mm -hmm. Uh, so by numbers uh maybe the participations weren't that high uh but i have i like relative of mine have told me stories of but they were part of it too mm. uh one of my best friends her parents met uh in the communist party meetings uh in their city uh her aunt was part of it as well my own grandmother told me stories of like uh she used to cook food and give it out mm. in the street to the young people who were going for the protests uh so there was definitely uh involvement of women on these uh within the, on, the capacity uh, within the, yeah within the yeah. capacity that they had in different levels yeah um i, I want to clarify i'm not yeah. trying to shit on men no, no, no. Just, just for something fun and different. But I want to yeah. really explore the erasure of women from these spaces mm-hmm. and, and yeah. women and gender diverse people. Yeah, yeah there's something cool that uh, Hoda found. Uh, do you want to talk yeah. about it? The family protection law, what it was? Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that there was like before the Islamic revolution that happened in 1979, there was some unions for women that they, they were like, they were working in different areas of economy like for example in power companies they were working there and these unions help women with social um, services like for example uh, finding a nurse uh, finding a nurse for their kids when they're going to grow up they're going to to Mm -hmm. work they want someone to take care of their kids or this and that these unions were there before the revolution happening but after that they were all banished uh, there were lots of women rights, uh, women rights um, unions that they were fighting against what's happening in Iran. Uh, but at the same time, their mistake was that uh, let me let me correct my sentence. Like the oppression happening when those activists started to step down from women rights 
and put priority on what's what the country are confronting at that moment that it was war it was revolution it was the building a new country and everything and you know step down from all the women right that they were fighting for before and also they were like the government itself they were putting pressure on them that are not fighting for women at the moment. And there were like such, lots of meetings and seminars that happening after the revolution mm. for women. And the governments, there were like some meeting that uh, I remember I was uh, listening to a podcast and they were saying that the government shut down the power and they, they had to um, keep going the meeting with candles and, you know, this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> So that that's happening. Uh, so and the oppression against women has started when Khomeini ordered that women cannot go to work without hijab, without covering their hair. Mm. So that that started, and uh, and also ridiculous. Um, between 1979 and 1981, uh, there was some ridiculous law that come to the added to the structure of Islamic Republic name stoning law. Uh, which is a capital punishment that's happening to uh, to only women. As a married woman, if you have a sexual relationship other than your uh, husband, and the court is going to punish you to stoning, which is like they're going to put you they somewhere, dig a hole on the ground, uh, dig a hole on the ground yeah. and yeah, cover you with half half in soil, and um, and the other people is going to stone you to death. So human rights services reporting that. 150 women uh, stoned to death after the Islamic Revolution happened. Like, it's difficult to say that it's, this is the actual data because it's yeah. really hard to gathering all the data. There isn't any official data from the government itself. But I think it, it could be more than that. Like, it could... Yeah, yeah this is this is some something that happened. And the, the family protection law that Nazan mentioned uh, earlier, this happened uh, 11 years before the Islamic Revolution the Khomeini revolution. So it was about marriage and divorce. Before that, before that, which is, we're talking about 1964. So before that, men could divorce their woman whatever they wanted to. Mm -hmm. But after the law, there's a court and to be permitted by the court and everything. So this was like protecting the woman. And also look for the marriage because the majority of the population in Iran, uh, they they are Muslims. And because of that, they they were allowed to have four official wives and unlimited unofficial wives. Uh, But after that, they need to go to the court. They need to talk to the first, first wife and also like says that, okay, this man can afford it and this and that. I think it was the start of protecting the the woman uh, in the marriage and it could and it stopped after the revolution the Khomeini revolution this this women rights severely restricted in Iran yeah. uh, in different area that if you if you want to talk about it there are lots of examples there are lots of stories there are lots of dot points that we can talk about it for example I've never been in a stadium before so we cannot go and watch men's sport in the stadium as women if we go, we're going to get arrested. This is like the basic right that I, I remember myself that the first time that, that I went to the stadium, it was in Moscow. I, I entered to the stadium and, you know, the environment and everything was like, oh, my God, what have we missed this year? <laughs> oh, my God, it's so amazing. 
And um, yeah, this is the, like a simple basic example of what's happening to women in Iran after the revolution. Going back to uh, one of the one of the women's chants uh, in their protests against Islamic Republic shortly mm. after mm. Uh, Khomeini came to Iran uh, was that uh, we didn't have a revolution to go back. Yeah. Uh, so like yeah we don't want situation to get worse and mm. um uh like Hoda just went uh covered so many examples mm-hmm. and when we want to talk about our experiences living in Iran what happened what's happening what is what we want to change uh so many factors are intertwined I mm. see it as like a a really complicated tapestry mm. so many connections going here and there Uh, it is complicated. I've noticed that uh, it makes it hard. hard. Uh, um, these ten something years I've been in Australia, uh, that yeah, I have explained. So many people ask me, "Oh, how is Iran?" Especially like before uh, Gino's revolution. That's another phrase we use for it. I'm just trying to emphasize that this is a revolution started because of her, because Gino Amini, because Gino Amini's death, and uh, I. I would always like, you know, explain a little bit to them and then people would get confused. They're like, oh, but, but, but the logic, the logic doesn't make sense. This is very complicated what you're telling us. There's so many mm-hmm. points of contradiction. Um, Islamic Republic really benefits on creating confusion and complexity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are many examples of that. Like, for example, this example that Hoda referred to, going to the stadium. Mm-hmm. So at some point, revolution has happened. Uh, Khomeini comes in. One of the earlier examples that I've heard about. So, um, after Shah leaves, uh, there's like there's like this very interesting story that solidifies uh, the role of Khomeini as the leader. Mm. Before that, he was just one other voice of the opposition. Etelat mm. uh, newspaper, one of the biggest newspapers at the time they publish their first headline Shah left only two words covering the whole top of the page uh, that the story goes that they didn't have letters letter blocks that big for it the night before to cover it in the size that the editor wanted to to like you know just make this sentence that Shah left Mm. way more than what it actually was yeah he really wanted to say he's gone like you know now we're now we're open now the change is happening editor of etela uh, they had to like make leather blocks just the night before somehow just to make it the big thing that he wanted yeah. and there are so many pictures of the day after people holding up this newspaper mm. and i think two weeks later is when khomeini comes other things are happening uh, still like you know the government is in trouble mm-hmm. there is a government there is a prime minister people are shouting in the streets uh, to the prime minister open the airport because Khomeini wanted to come back and his supporters are saying yeah, open the airport we want him back uh, and there was a I think a carpet seller in Tehran Bazaar or maybe another business but yes yeah, someone from the Tehran's Bazaar who charters a a France airplane to bring Khomeini to Iran that's also a really big moment media moment and then the next headline about that is the same newspaper same size of font that says Imam came 
referring to Khomeini and Imam in Islam means someone that you're following. Mm. It's not just a person anymore. It's a whole status in your society and your history. You're supposed to like follow them and do as they say, and they're going to lead you through your life. Imam came. These two headlines really solidified his position in the country. He comes to Tehran. The first place that he goes getting off after getting off the airplane is to the Tehran cemetery. He goes there. He gives a speech about all the people who have died. Also, I should say Khomeini's Farsi is actually pretty bad. Throughout uh, even university education, we had to study whatever he said. And it was always so confusing. His sentence structure is bizarre. And then everyone is saying, no, 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 this is what he meant. Like, again, there's so much room for interpretation. Some people who are more moderate, who are more like, you know, open-minded, they'll say, no, no, no. He means like the spirit of Islam. He means like, you know, the good things about Islam. Some other hardliners are rating it as face value and they're applying it to their own point of view. He says, no, he said that people have to behave Islamic. There is like this... uh different interpretations going on, which, you know, helps him to gain support and also have hardliners and uh, really radical people, radical Islamist people uh, to be like, yes, yes, this is what we want. This is like what we believe in. And especially if it's in a time of turmoil, like people want someone to lead them. The media is like, follow this guy. Yeah, people were feeling, oh, revolution is done. Here's the guy. He comes to Iran. He comes to Tehran. He obviously has nowhere to go. He's been exiled for 15 years. He doesn't have a home in Tehran. Can't speak Farsi. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, his Farsi is bizarre. It's not. Was Farsi his first language? It is, but you know, he grew up in Khomein, uh, which is a small village, which was a small village oh, at the time. So and they have their own dialect. Yeah. Also, like he studied in Najaf in Iraq, I believe. Uh, so he also knows Arabic. Mm. Uh, there's differences in uh, different dialects in Iran. Yeah, there's differences in literature. So when like, you know, you might be talking to somebody from a different city, there might be some mm. phrases you don't know. They use it differently. That's all okay when you're having normal conversation. Yeah. It becomes problematic when you are having a type of dialect that the majority of the people of that country are not familiar with. It's from his own small city, yeah. his own village. His own small, tiny world. Yeah, the country is trying to understand what he's saying. Yeah. The first moment that uh, in the Tehran Cemetery... And in the, like, the interviews he's having really close to that day, people ask him about, like, you know, what about this, what about that? There are a couple of famous sentences that he says, uh, I'm going to make power and water free for everybody, nationalized mm. everything. Like, you know, it's going to be free for everyone. Uh, don't buy homes. Uh, I'm going to give home to everybody. There are videos of shortly after that, that he starts also this uh, charity in his name that's still active in Tehran. They still gather so many donations. Uh, they still have like donation boxes just in the streets. There are metal donation boxes that people put in donations and them. Yeah. still active, huge charity. There are videos of... But did he uh, actually give people homes? Like, did that happen? God knows, like, you know, uh, some people, some less. people get services from it, but it's so hard to get services from it. Yeah. Uh, Is it one of those things where the organization determines if you're worthy of the service or? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many requirements to get help from them. And also there isn't much check and balances. It's like they get the money, they decide where to spend it themselves. Uh, and it's all cor- the corruption? organization in his name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, There are videos of people coming into the bank. This is like two, three months after he comes to Iran. And uh, they are like putting 
their whole life saving, their deposit that they want to keep it by money, by house or like, you know, their profit of the year, things like that mm-hmm. into this account for this charity because they're saying, yes, Imam said that this is what we're supposed to do. We're going to give our money. He knows what to do best. He knows what to do best. Uh, and, you know, activities like that, people giving their surplus income to the uh, imam of their own city, of like, oh, you know, their religious yeah. leader is already part of the teachings of Islam because uh, kind of like, they're like, okay, Islamic community, you're together, you have surplus of income. It's kind of like a tax on your income. Yeah. Uh, so who would you tax. give it to? You give it yeah. to somebody that you trust in your community. Who would that be? Somebody yeah. that knows their religion. And then they're going to divide it uh, between the poor. They're going to uh, maintain the mosque. They're going to maintain the services. That's all good when it's on a small scale. Mm. You apply that thinking to a whole country, to 80 million mm. people. Corruption, exactly. And you don't know what's going on. People were really following him. And um, all of these uh, Bazaar, uh, so Tehran Bazaar, the main power of economy in Tehran and uh, by establishing mm-hmm. the whole country, uh, there's so much money that goes through this system of commerce still to this day. When they start supporting Khomeini, then there's so much money and power behind him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just within one day, they put him up in a school. There was a uh, like high school that it was like, I don't know, it's, for some reason it's closed down now. I don't know how that happened. But he starts having a place for meeting people in mm. that school. And overnight, it gets carpeted from from start to finish. And Persian carpet is expensive. Mm. All of these bazari carpet sellers bring mm. their carpets. Yeah. This is like people giving him services. Mm. money access overnight so many of things are happening so like it's grassroots yeah it's based on emotions but it is helping him now has a place to have meetings and people are coming to that school to meet him so he's a religious person one of the first things that people are asking oh what should women wear when they come to see you by him being a religious leader existing in this space this space is suddenly a holy space you know it's good if they wear hijab from that one little place in the city, it just starts expanding. Now it's good. Now that I have the government, so it's by extension to me, you have to wear a job if you're working in the system. You have to wear a job if you're coming for services. Mm. Now in the streets, I'm seeing, and then that keeps uh, multiplying. Expanding, and expanding. In Buddhism, you give your access to those religious people. Like you said, on a small scale, wonderful. For the person who's leading the country, less ideal. And shortly after... Uh, 8 of March 1979 is one of the biggest, uh, almost one of the first protests against Islamic Republic, against Khomeini. From like that early moment, there is still no much of a constitution. The election for the constitution even hasn't happened yet. Everything is up in the air. Uh, There are still like all of those official governments from Shah's time are still there. There are so many things still happening, but men who believed in these teachings, in this philosophy, who were kind of like already, I, I, I honestly only can call them radical Islamists because there's nothing else describing them. They had a belief and they wanted to force that belief on everybody else. Mm. They start harassing women in the street. They start telling them. One of the stories I've read recently, people telling what happened to them during that time, that even rare short period like yeah men shouting at women in the street your shah is gone we're gonna put you in a bag soon as well 
you're a slut, you're a whore, you're an unclean person, things like that. They start forcing the hijab themselves mm-hmm. because that's the most visible sign of Islam, which is bizarre. Their belief depends on somebody else wearing something and they start enforcing it. Then that keeps getting violent. Seems like that. My grandma have described them to me. Yeah. Uh, what they would shout. What was their chance? What was their behavior? There is a whole teaching also in Islam, especially in the Shia Islam, and especially even more than that, in Khomeini's version of Shia Islam, uh, which is Amr be ma'ruf, encouraging the good and discouraging the bad. If it's just at the level of talking and having a conversation, yes, you're having a conversation, you believe in something, you talk to other people about it, you encourage them, hey, this is a good thing if you do it, it's good if you help the poor, it's good if you be a kind person. It's bad if you're like hurting other people, it's bad if you're lying. If it's in that level... Yes, perfect. Mm. But what Khomeini did was that he used the ideologies of a religion and expanded mm-hmm. it to a form of government, now a system of laws. But still, that depends on people carrying out the law on their own. So you're putting the responsibility not on the police officers or not on the judiciary system, but on every individual that believes in your system to follow through with it. So much of the harassment that women face in Iran... Mm. And so much of the oppression that we have gone through comes from just individuals. Just individual people see that it's their responsibility. And when they believe that what you're wearing, how you're behaving, what you're doing, who you're sleeping with or not, who, what is your sexuality, what is this and that, is such an important part of their religion and their belief of, and their system of beliefs, it's going to get violent. Because yeah. at some point, telling us isn't enough, now they're going to hit us. Now they're going to take pictures of us. Now they're going to like imprison us. That constant struggle yeah. for power and control, classic abuser, that the more that you resist, they up the ante. Yeah. So that uh, 1979, 8th of March protest, a really huge one, Yeah. Uh, was in reaction to what women were facing already in the streets. Yeah. One of the chances that men had when they were coming to like you know, beat up women was either wear the hijab or we're going to hit you in the head. Yoru seri, yotu seri. And it's like making mm-hmm. a rhyme from the word headscarf, which is ruseri. And the women were chanting, naru seri, natsu seri, ozodio barabari. Uh, neither hijab, neither getting attacked, uh, give us our liberties back, uh, freedom and equality. Basically, that's what they were yeah. chanting. But even that protest got violent uh, yeah. really quickly. Men started attacking them, and it was like violent attack. The people, I'm sure if we can't find the evidence, maybe some people even lost their lives back then yeah. uh, in those times, which I wouldn't pass it by them. Is that the phrase? And uh, that behavior of people carrying out what they believe in on their own, men, mm-hmm becoming violent towards women back then it happened with that chant some women started wearing the headscarf but it was loose yeah so some of them start attacking them and then they would bring down the headscarf and then they would push down the headscarf with a pushpin through their through their forehead that's a scene my grandma saw and she told me about that and then i have seen it in couple movies being de- depicted or like with a staple or like staple it onto their head oh, because it has to yeah. be here. It, it yeah. shouldn't be up on your hair. You shouldn't show it. So yeah, back then they did it like that. So some women go to the street without hijab 
at the beginning of the revolution and like uh, in objection of uh, the compulsory hijab and they got arrested and uh, also they, they were showing them some forced uh, confession in the TV and in the newspaper. They are wearing hijab and they're saying that, oh, we were wrong. We did a mistake that, you know, go to street without the hijab, like a forced comp confession. And this forced confession has started like this is the very beginning the, of the, yeah. all the forced confession that happening in Iran. Like recently, there were a couple of girls dancing in the street and uh, in Ekpas, and they, they are really famous in Ekpas and girls. Um, they were just dancing. Yeah. You know, yeah. what's wrong with dancing? Why? They got arrested and they had a, like a forced confession that, oh, we did wrong. We shouldn't dance in the street. Uh, we didn't know it's it's a wrong thing, and I was like, "Why? I I don't still, I don't know." Um, if you know the answer of this question, let me know why. Why are you trying to dance? Like, dancing is is the huge is the big part of any any culture, right? especially Iranian culture, different mm -hmm. kind of dances, and they are just against anything, against any any happiness for women. And also men, and also men as well. Also men, also men. But oppression against women are, are more than men. They actually bribe men by giving them some advantages, some freedom to to be able to do those to women. Yeah. Hmm. I guess that's, that's the thing. I guess, yeah, you yeah. have a stake in the society. Uh, just recently, uh, there is a, a new like TV show that uh, in the Iran's state TV, uh, it, it started showing uh, so it's like a ripoff of The Voice it's a music competition but of course there are no women singing solo in it all the judges are men <laughs> all the participants are also men a man and a woman singing together that's like the only women's voice aren't allowed to be they're not allowed to sing solo they can sing together so like you know we have women's choir part of symphonic orchestra yes they're there or they can be singing with another man. That's also a thing, which of course have limited uh, so much of uh, the women's music uh, throughout these 44 years. Uh, and so many female musicians have, uh, or and singers, uh, even they might have started in Iran at some point, they left or they like, you know, are working underground. They're doing different tactics to still practice their craft and kind of like communicate their art. Uh, but yeah, so people started on social media, and of course, this show is being broadcasted right now, after six months of fighting in the street for women's rights and minority rights. Okay, People are, of course, mad at the artists, uh, the musicians who are part of this project. They're like, what is this? Uh, one of them put a video on his Instagram, and he was saying, you know, we made this show three years ago. We recorded everything two years ago. It's not for now. Mm -hmm. It's just being shown now. It's for the TV channel that we made it for. So why are you mad at me? And they were like, you know, I don't understand all of these musicians that are the legends of uh, Persian music. After the law of uh, banning uh, women's solo singing was passed, all of these other musicians started working after that. None of you guys are mad at them. None of them have ever brought a woman on the stage with them to sing. And you all respect all of them. And then he went on to say, yeah, there is also like this football uh, program. Yes, women aren't allowed in the stadiums. This program is really popular. 
when that program got banned and its host also uh, got banned from like being on TV, he was investigating corruption in Iran's uh, football. Uh, so yeah, he he kind of like got in so much trouble for that. Uh, Ferdusipur, that's the name of the host. Yeah. In the 20 years that that show was on TV, they never ever had a woman. They never talked about women's football. They never talked about women's sport. Nobody was mad at them. Why are you guys all mad at me? And then like, you know, this thing of, yeah, other people have oppressed you. Why can't I continue? Other people have used this system, have taken advantage of it, have made money within this system. Why can't I continue to do that? Why do I have to be the one to have any kind of accountability? Yeah, exactly. Why yeah. do I have to do that? And yeah, uh, this uh, musician, Iranian musician, Galora Poor, uh, she's in Melbourne. She's based in Melbourne right now. And uh, she uh, talked about her own experiences of being a musician in Iran and how much limited she was, uh, that left and right, she was getting told, oh, don't do this, do that, like, she was being controlled uh yeah she posted that on her instagram and she was like yeah of course other people have done it before why shouldn't you oh my god poor you <laughs> you're taking away this opportunity from me <laughs> um when i still hear stories like that when i still see moments like that you know it makes me sad these problems were were obviously problems before we're just talking about them more right now it was never okay that's the truth please understand mm-hmm. that but at the same time, I'm also happy I'm seeing this show is getting so much of a backlash just from the teaser of it. Mm. People are saying, hey, th- th- where are women? Where is the quality? Where is our society? We're not, this is not showing the people of this country anymore. Yeah. It's a lot of moments yeah. of, you know, sadness, a disappointment, but also hope mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, this big change that we're all going through. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that we can keep on the fight and other people understand it. And, you know, people don't give up. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. are tired. The burnout, the work of actually unlearning older oppressions and things that you've been told since a child are correct. And yeah. then coming to that realization, maybe not. And then the, the casual bias and the learnt bias that you, you've grown with and challenging that is so hard like it, that's the emotional labor of that is really difficult. Like, poor me, I have to unlearn my racism or my internet. Like, it's not that. It's like, it, like acknowledging that it's hard work and it does actually tire yes. people while you're actually still living within a state of oppression as well. Yeah, so it's, that's gonna burn people out. The hope, I think, we can't let that burn out. Oh God, no, no, no. we we cannot. That moment of hope. Yeah. Uh, when I was seeing. Um, that like people in the street are shouting uh mass i mean his name woman life freedom mm. women taking off their head a scarf mm. men teenage boys attacking the police officers jumping up in the air oh, yeah. punching them. <laughs> even scenes i have not seen before and oh my god what uh this uh journalist iranian journalist he's in america his name is Saman Arbabi. Uh, he's like he has like his own style on his social media he started putting all of those videos of the protests usually won't like watch them much because it was like giving mm. me so much anxiety all the time he started putting them uh and then he put rock music over it <laughs> and it was just so good i was like yes yes this is happening but you know it is costing a lot um 
I was getting the energy from the footage and from seeing, yeah. oh my God, my people, my country is going through yeah. something that they haven't gone through before. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, the devastation, all the lives that we have lost, all the people yeah. who have been mm-hmm. tortured, injured, mm. pressured. Um, it is hard to keep on fighting and talking about yeah. it. I don't know, like so many people some people are like yeah you know people in iran aren't doing anything anymore they're not going to the protests anymore and then i'm like they still are there are still videos of it it's happening here and there you need to see it you need to believe in it it's happening they can't have million multi-million protests in the streets because it's not Mm. safe they don't want to die they're tired the majority of the people who had platforms in iran who started Mm. posting about the protests They've been in prison, so many of them. Yeah. Oh my God, there's like this one TikTok, Instagram funny guy, Armand the Freak. Yeah, that's his, that's his handle name. Uh, he, he used to just like, you know, post funny videos. Uh, that was like his thing. And of course, I, when the protest started, he put a question on his Instagram. He was like, should I keep posting funny videos or should I post about what's happening in Iran? Do you guys, which one do you want to see? And yeah. the majority of the people, of course, told him, no, 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 we want to see what's happening. Yeah. And so he started posting on his platform of the news and he had a pretty big following. After a while, I noticed, oh, I haven't seen his videos in a while. And then mm. I like started Googling him. Oh, he's in prison. Mm. Yesterday, he posted the first video in his six months and that and he's saying so i'm out uh, i haven't been around for some reasons that we're not gonna talk about we all know what happened and then he yeah. said i finally got my phone back you <laughs> know i can post videos but i have no fucking idea what to post happy new year guys and now like, yeah. and he wasn't even writing himself he was like resharing other people's work and he's been in so much trouble for six months. Did yeah, no news of him, nothing. That's just like one example. There are yeah. so oh, yeah. many more people yeah. who were active. The, the all of these Instagram accounts who were active were getting news out, who were writing. Yeah. And the majority of them are gone. So of course you're not gonna see as much as you were seeing six months ago because nobody's left to be able to broadcast it. It's amazing that how much accurate news we're still getting out of Iran. Yeah. How much real-time footage we're still getting. Yeah. Imagine how much risk those people are taking, recording it, putting it together, publishing it. Yeah. And then for you to see it and then judge over here in your freedom and your security, oh, people aren't doing anything. There's no point. Let's go home. I, mm, yeah, I, yeah, I really struggle with that. Particularly like just putting together a big protest like that is so much work and energy. So imagine energy. you do it with no safety. You yeah, can't exactly. announce telling people come here at this time because then forces and are going to be gotta, there. You've got to look at what's the what's the aim of this of this action. This thing, like, what do we want out of this? Because you're not going to change the government's mind. They're not yeah. going to do anything. Are you trying to put pressure mm. on the international governments to put pressure on Iran? Potentially, that could have that could help. But it's such a big risk to do that. You're just kind of like, is is this the best use of my energy and of my time? And it would not surprise me at all if these big organisers that have been doing all of this have now gone underground and are organising underground. Not everything has to be a big flash mob. 
exactly. the social media. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Or, there's so much more to organising than just protesting on the streets. I'm really excited to see what happens next. Like excited I, sounds like a weird, <laughs> that's a weird way to put it. I'm not excited. excited. I'm really hopeful for what hopeful, happens. Hopeful, yeah. yeah. But I, 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 I'm not only hopeful. I have faith that it's yes. happening. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's going to start from even smaller steps that mm. everyone, every single person, doesn't matter that they are in Iran, doesn't matter they are overseas. Every single step is really, really, really important mm. to make this change happening. All these people that got killed, all these people that they are in prison, they're, they got tortured. All, all those, all those women that got out of jail and suicided. Or, or they were this. drugged to die. Or like, they were they drugged don't even to know. die. Yeah. All those happening, it's not because of nothing. Yes. I know, I know that I, I have faith the change is going to come. Even though that you cannot see it in the street at the moment, but it's it's inside of the heart of every yeah. single person in Iran. And um, it's like a fire, you know. When you have a you know, fire, it's, it's going on. And yeah, yeah, for, for a while it's there. But then it's... No, calm down. But there is still some some fire under the ashes. It just needs some uh, supply, some material to add to it, yeah. some wood and stuff. And and I'm sure it's happening. I'm sure it's happening in the future. Yeah. And there are so many brave people in Iran, oh, like so especially many. women. Like I'm so proud of the girls that they are so brave that they're fighting, still they're fighting. And the difference, you you were asking if women was engaging in the uh, Khomeini revolution, and uh, we don't have lots of information about it. But the difference between that revolution and this revolution is that the women is leading. And if you see a woman going to the street and there's a soldier, imagine you're seeing your sister, you're seeing your mother beaten by a soldier. As a man, you cannot see that I do nothing. You yeah. go. That's a difference. Like women go leading that protest, and the men are supporting them and stand yeah. behind them. That's the difference. Yeah, that's that's happening. That's happening. Women are really brave. Like yeah. women, men, they they are standing behind them. We have so many brave singers. We have so many brave uh, politics active in Iran that they they are in jail. Because of just they don't care if they're risking their own life. Uh, they don't care what's happening to them and to their family. They're just uh, fighting for the goal of human rights, women rights, and children's rights. And we talked a lot about compulsory hijab and um, why compulsory hijab is really important because it's the fundamental uh, pillar of this Islamic regime. And if it's collapse, there's some part of a structure collapse. The other is going to collapse as well. That's why we are, we are like, we're really focusing on this area. And uh, I think it's happening. I'm sure it's happening. And I'm, I'm like, I'm really uh, like a newbie in activism and this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I don't know much about it, but I have to. That's, that's the only thing that I have. That is the end of Women Life Freedom Part 1, Freedom for Iran, with Nazanin and Hoda. Please stick around for Part 2 of the conversation. Women Life Freedom, say her name. And also check out Feminist in Melbourne on Instagram and all the links are in the show notes. Please like, share and boost these incredible women's voices. Cheers.